Please take a copy of God's Word now in hand and turn to Psalm number 4, the fourth Psalm. If you're using a pew Bible, it is on page 448 and 449. So 448 in the pew Bible there. Psalm chapter 4. The last verse of this psalm says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. So in the history of the church, this has been known as an evening psalm. The previous psalm, in the ordering of this first part of the Psalter, Psalm 3, uh, speaks of, I lay down and slept, I woke again for the Lord sustained me, Psalm 3, verse 5. And so it would seem that there is here in the beginning, in Psalm 3, a morning psalm, Psalm 4, an evening psalm. The basic outline of the psalm here is in the first verse, we see that David pens a prayer. Then, in verses 2 through 5, um, it feels somewhat disjointed um, as you're reading it, and you'll see here in a moment, poetically, because it transitions from prayer to teaching, to exhortation. I think there's a good reason why, and we'll look at that this evening. And then he resumes the praying, if you would, in verses 6 through 8. So verse 1, prayer, 2 to 5, teaching, and then verses 6 to 8, we have a closing prayer. In this psalm, there's a shift from the beginning. David is almost lamenting, but he doesn't stay in lament. It ends in confidence. And that's what I want us to see this evening, from lament to confidence, peace and distress. Before I read God's word for us, let us ask for his help again in prayer. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we desperately need you to speak to us. Help us to hear and receive your word at the close of this day. We ask that you would make it a word of power and peace to convert those who are not yet yours. May it be a word of power and to confirm those that are yours. May it be a word of peace. We are reminded that our sins are forgiven and that he that began a good work in us will see it to completion. May your word further that work in our hearts and lives this evening. And I said you would bless those gathered here tonight, that me, your unworthy servant, proclaiming your word, that I might teach them, sanctify, and enable all my powers and giftings towards that end, that I might deliver what this passage has to say reverently, readily, faithfully, and Lord, by the blessing of your spirit, fruitfully. And so we ask that you'd make your word a swift word, passing from ear to heart and from heart to life. And we ask this by the power of your spirit and for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hear the word of God from Psalm chapter 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain lies, vain words, and seek after lies? Salah. 
But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Salah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. What keeps you up at night? For many in this room tonight, stress and anxiety keeps you from falling asleep. As your head hits the pillow, it immediately fills with a myriad of concerns. Concern over your child's education, concerns over making ends meet at the end of the month, concerns over finding a new job, concerns over something you just read on the news feed on your phone. And then there's medical concerns that feed into stress and anxiety. Your mind is flooded with thoughts like, is this spot infected? I'm too young to have high blood pressure. What in the world is this lump? Not to mention concerns ongoing related to COVID-19. There could be relational struggles that keep you from peaceful sleep. Tension with a roommate, conflict with a coworker, an obstinate and rebellious child, concerns over hosting your in-laws this Thanksgiving. I'm not trying to just trigger everyone's anxiety all at once. I just want to say that we all have things that keep us up at night. We all have times when we can't turn off worry and we toss and we turn. I believe Psalm chapter 4 offers each of us help. It's penned by David, and in the life of David, we see many occasions and circumstances that would cause sleepless nights. Let me remind you of a couple. King Saul pursuing him, the loss of a child, the rebellion of his son Absalom, or leading a nation in a time of drought. These are just a few occasions where we would expect King David to have trouble sleeping. We don't know the exact occasion here in Psalm 4, but Israel is facing some national calamity of some sort. And David as king must bear the weight of leading the nation through it. But his testimony at the end of the psalm is shalom. It's been shalom. That's the, the Hebrew preposition and the Hebrew word for peace. That's his testimony. When he puts his head on his pillow, it's in peace. Amid distress, David can sleep. He has peace during trouble because his heart and his mind are fixed 
on the Lord. He doesn't tell us the exact circumstances because this was penned for corporate worship. It was to the choir master with stringed instruments. He intended it to be a psalm for the people of God, for all of us. So believer, I want us to see tonight that you can have peace amid distressing circumstances by fixing your heart and mind on the Lord. That's the one point. If this was a one-point sermon, that would be it. The big idea. You can have peace amid distressing circumstances by fixing your heart and mind on the Lord. Now let us look at the psalm itself to kind of flesh that out, to see what that means. So in three sections, corresponding to the prayer, the teaching, and the prayer, in verse 1, I want us to see David's cry. And then in verses 2 to 5, David's correction. And then in verses 6 to 8, David's confidence. Look back at verse 1 with me. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. We begin with a cry of desperation. The psalm here opens with a desperate prayer. Now, it may seem like the most basic observation, but it's a necessary reminder to you and I that in the face of trouble, David turns first to God. Too often, if we're honest, prayer is the last resort and not our first instinct. We need to learn from David, don't wait to pray. Desperate times call for desperate prayers. Next, I want, to, want us to notice that this desperate cry is a remembering prayer. The desperate cry is a remembering prayer. The ESV, I believe, correctly translates the verb right there in the middle of verse 1. You have given me relief. Other translations would put this as part of the supplication, where he has a supplication, answer me, be gracious to me, hear my prayer, give me relief. But that verb there in the Hebrew is different than those other verbs in verse 1. It's in the perfect tense. It means that it is something that God has already done, and it has a lasting effect. So what does he say? He remembers you have given me relief when I was in distress. He's remembering God's past faithfulness. And he's praying accordingly. If there's a sense of lament in this desperate cry, it's tempered by remembering God's past faithfulness. This is a good week to do that, isn't it? that it is a very godly thing to set apart time for thanksgiving. How would you be intentional with those in your circle this thanksgiving? That's one of the most helpful things that we can do with a, a, a sensitive spirit to those hurting, to those in desperation, to remind them of God's past faithfulness this week to the hurting, to the grieving. Each of us in our need, take time this week and recall how the Lord has brought relief when I was in distress. 
a, a wooden word for word literal translation would be something like, you made space for me. You made room for me. And that's what we're translating here is you have given me relief. And isn't that a good picture of distress and desperate times where it feels like everything is caving in on you? Everything is pressing in. The burdens are piling up. And here David says, but I've been in this situation. I've been backed into a corner where it feels like the whole world is closing in on me. And I've seen God, how you've opened things up. You've made room for me. It's a remembering prayer. Next, notice how this desperate cry is a faith-filled prayer. David's faith is expressed in what he believes about God. What does he declare? Well, in verse 1 here, he believes that God is the sort of God who hears the prayer of the righteous. He's a prayer-hearing God, and he's confident of this in his desperate cry. It is a God who hears the prayer of the righteous, but look how he addresses God. Oh, God of my righteousness. So here it is saying something about God's character. He is righteous, but there's also reference to David. He's saying, the God who hears my prayer is the God of my righteousness. See, God is righteous, and as we see throughout the scriptures, from Abraham and more clearly in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, God is righteous, and he is the one who makes righteous. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith. And David is placing himself on those terms before God. By faith, the sinner is made righteous, and on the grounds of gifted righteousness, David is crying out to God. On the grounds of gifted righteousness, every believer has an audience with the righteous God. And what do you do when you seek such an audience with God? Well, look what David does. He says, be gracious to me. Be gracious to me. Approach the throne of heaven and seek more grace in the time of despair. Our Heavenly Father has an abundance of grace. He will not run out. Every day we are dependent on His grace, and there are times when we need more and more of that grace. And He invites us to come and make withdrawals on the riches of His grace because his grace is sufficient for whatever situation you are facing. So David's cry. Then in verses two to four, we see David's correction. Now I told you that there is some teaching going on here, verses two to four, actually it's verses two to five. Verses two to five, he's doing some teaching here. It seemed that the, the, the prayer has shifted in, in tone and almost to exhortation. And it would seem that he has an audience in mind that he wants to hear, in, hear these words in corporate worship. And as we look at verses 2 to 5, we can imply a series of wrong responses to distress. And we do so by looking at David's instructions. 
It would seem that there are those who in the midst of distress are opposing God's anointed. That's in verse two. Then it would seem that in the midst of distress, there are some who are angry about the circumstances, verse four. And then in verse five, there would seem like there would be those in the midst of this trouble who are neglecting worship in verse five. So first, those who are opposing God's anointed. Look at verse two again with me. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? You can see there in your ESV Bible, there's a footnote for men. It's men of rank. So these would have been uh, not just a general call, but he has a specific audience in mind. It would be those who have some sort of leadership in David's kingdom with him. And apparently, under the circumstances, they have voted a vote of no confidence for the king. And David is saying, they are saying slanderous things about me. They are supposed to follow me in this and through this. And they are supposed to then be the, the, those who help me rule and lead in the kingdom. These men are giving me trouble. They have, it's an odd way to expect it, but David's saying, my honor has been turned into shame. It's not speaking of God's honor. David's saying, my honor as king has been turned to shame by these men. They have loved vain words and seek after lies. What was their, their, their gripe with David? What was the beef that they'd have with him? Well, whatever the calamity was, the king was responsible to be as the covenant head of God's people to lead them through it. And so if the trouble isn't going away, there could be something wrong with the king or maybe there's something wrong with the king's God. And maybe these men of rank are looking beyond the boundaries of Israel and looking for help for another God. If you look there at the end of verse two, it says, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The NIV translates that last part to seek after false gods. Because normally we speak of people speaking lies, but seeking has a religious connotation. That they're saying, this king has led us into trouble. He can't get us out, and neither can his God. And so it would seem that there are those who are not just opposing the Lord's anointed, but the Lord himself, and seeking after false gods. So how does David respond? Look at verse three. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. He gives, in contrast to their direction that they're bringing, he says, you have to know, I still am God's man. See, godly there, it's, a, it's the singular it's not the godly in general. He's specifically identifying himself. He says, I am the godly. It's a singular noun. It's a particular noun. It's a noun, hesed, which sounds like hesed. It's similar. If we transliterate the words, it's H-A-S-I-D in English, hesed. He's saying, I'm the hesed. I'm the godly. And it's similar to the word hesed, H. E-S-E-D, if we transliterate the Hebrew into English. Hesed is the word for God's covenant love. 
oftentimes translated in our Bible, steadfast love. So the hasid is the recipient of God's steadfast love. David is saying, I'm the one whom God has entered into a covenant with. God has set me apart. Do not lead the people astray. I am the covenant recipient one. And what does it mean that God has set him apart? The language is familiar from the book of Exodus. We see in Exodus chapter 8, verse 22, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 4, in Exodus chapter 11, verse 7, that God set apart Israel and the land of Goshen in the midst of Egypt as he was sending the plagues of judgment against Egypt. So the godly one who's been set apart is the one who is distinct from others whom God has set his protection upon. But also in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 33, verse 16, Moses says, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, set apart, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? In the book of Exodus, for God to set apart his people, for God to set apart his Moses as his servant meant that he protected them and that his presence was with them. So in the midst of this trouble, David says, I'm the one that God has set apart, that God is with, and that God is protecting. And so he's saying, do not abandon your one that God has given to you, the anointed king. David is con uh, confident that the Lord will hear when he calls to him based on that the Lord he calls upon has made a covenant with him and he is a covenant-keeping God. Now this is true of David, first and foremost in this context, but it's true of every Christian in this room tonight. Because ultimately, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant was through David's descendant, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who was sent. He is the one that is godly that the Lord has set apart for himself, that the Lord would always hear, accept at Calvary. That here, truly the Lord's anointed let go of the protection and the blessed presence of God in order that sinners like you and I could be set apart unto God. So, yes, this does mean the church. It comes through David's great-grandson. David told those who were opposing him, God will hear me. His great-grandson spread out on the cross, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David can sleep in the midst of his circumstances. And we can have rest and peace in a covenant-keeping God because David's descendant, Christ, went a sleepless night bearing the wrath of God for covenant breakers in order that we could be set apart for God himself. David corrects them 
and says, there is no hope outside of God's anointed. But then he addresses some who in the midst of these circumstances have become angry. Look at verse four. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So this could be a different category. This could be necessarily, uh, not necessarily those who are looking to leave the, the devotion to Yahweh and to the Lord, but they are angry with David, maybe. The concern and the caution is in your anger, in these circumstances, don't become angry with God. Be angry and do not sin. So what does it sound like? Well, it sounds like Paul's instructions in Ephesians that don't let the sun go down in your anger. It, there is something of a correlation here. But what is David instructing them to do? He was instructing them, don't give full vent to your anger. Doesn't that oftentimes make things worse in difficult circumstances? You can rehearse them in such a way that is helpful and bearing your soul with someone, and you can rehearse them in such a way that is feeding unbelief and discouragement and leading to despair. So David's instructions is be silent. But not just be silent on your bed. Ponder in your own hearts. Now, it's not just rehearsing what's going on or rehearsing an offense or rehearsing what is troubling you. It is ponder in your heart your God and his steadfast love. Ponder the God of your righteousness. Don't give full vent with your mouth to your frustration and anger. Instead, sleep on it. And as you lay your head down, ponder the graciousness of God. Ponder the ways that he has been faithful to you in the past. Then, in verse 5, there will be others. He tells them, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices. For them, the people of God in David's day, offer right sacrifices would have recalled Leviticus 1 through 7, the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. This is the means by which they were to engage the Lord in worship. It was a means of grace for them. It's no longer a means of grace for us this side of the cross, but it was a genuine means of grace that the people of God gathered in worship and then trusting in the ordinary means that God has promised to meet with his people in the, the making of atonement through the offering of sin. He's saying in the midst of these troubled times, the last thing we want to do as a people is to not gather and worship. No, that's the first thing we want to do is to gather and worship. Because it's then in engaging in worship that we are declaring our trust in the Lord. 
and that we are encouraging one another, strengthening one another. These are David's words of instructions, his correction to the people of God as he is leading them through a national calamity. And then it comes in the close to David's confidence in verses six through eight. The closing part of the psalm closes in a prayer. The first part of the prayer, David is rehearsing what the despairing are saying. Look at there, verse six, the first half. There are many who say, who will show us some good? And David has an answer. He appeals to Deuteronomy chapter six, and he takes the, the blessing of Aaron that Moses instructed Aaron to speak God's word of blessing on the people, and he turns it into a prayer. Do you see that? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. This is David's response to despair of the people around him. He doesn't necessarily point them to himself at this point, but he says, remember the blessing of God, and he prays it over the people of God. Lift up the light of your face upon us. Oh, Lord, it's another way of saying, Lord, be gracious to us, be favorable to us, don't remove your presence from us. And he's on good ground here. What, what is he doing? He's making the labor, making the effort to point himself and the people of God back to the word of God, to the sure word and the sure promises. How can they have peace amid distressing circumstances? How can they direct their minds and their hearts to the Lord? They must look to him and what he has said in his word. And so that's what he speaks over them. Lift up your light, the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And then his prayer moves to testimony. His prayer moves to telling of what the Lord has done in his heart and in his mind. Look at verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Many uh, commentators, they take that the, the circumstances that David and the people of God are facing in Psalm 4 is a drought based on this verse largely. Because they say, look, there is no grain and wine abounding, but J David says, I still have joy. And it, very well, that may be the circumstances. We're, we can't be certain. But notice what David is speaking of. He's drawing a contrast between the believer and the world. That the world, their joy is dependent upon their circumstances. But for the pilgrim, the one who is hoping in a better city and waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, our joy is not based on our circumstances. The world offers joy and peace based on what is going on outwardly. So maybe you might be tempted to follow that train of thought and say, life would be so much better if I just won the Powerball. That would fix everything. Uh, don't act like you don't play that game in your mind. When you drive past the billboard and it's like Powerball, $80 trillion. And you're like, 
man, if I did that, we can fix the church's basement. We could do this. We could do this, 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 and everything would be great. No, that's the promise that the world offers. And what do we see so often just in the stories of lottery winners that they end up oftentimes tragically divorced, blowing the whatever wealth that they won on a whim. The world says you can have peace of mind and sleep at night if you get the right security system in your home. That's how it is. That's how you have peace of mind. You put the doorbell out front with the video monitor. Well, I don't know if that really would give you peace of mind. If you could, every time you hear something happening outside your front door, you're able to check and see it. It might be better just to just say, Lord, I'm trusting you. I don't want to know what's happening out there. I think the door is locked and I'm going to trust that you will protect and watch over me. But that's how the world operates. David testifies that there is joy and peace that goes beyond circumstances to those whose heart and mind is fixed on God's past faithfulness, whose heart and mind is confident that God is a righteous God and that I could come before him, not in my righteousness, but in his righteousness through his son and have an audience. And I know that he will hear what I bring before him in my prayers. I know that the Lord has promised to put his, the light of his face upon me. I know that God will meet me in worship, that we are not alone. He inhabits the praises of his people, that he indwells us with his Holy Spirit, and that gives me joy and peace amid, amid distress. But it's hard to say this, but it needs to be said, this is something to be pursued. It's a gift, but it's not a given. This is part of the fighting, the fight of faith. See, we understand that the assurance of our salvation itself, assurance is not of the essence of faith, meaning that you can have saving faith without having full assurance, but we are to pursue assurance, to make our calling and our election sure. And in the Westminster Confession, on the chapter of assurance, uh, the only citation of Psalm chapter 4 in the entire Westminster Standards is chapter 18, paragraph 3, on assurance of faith. And it references these verses here at the end. And it says that joy is a fruit of assurance. But assurance is something that we have to go to and attend to the ordinary means of grace, and that's how it is given and brought. It's something to be pursued. It's the fight of faith that in the midst of distress, we can have peace by setting our hearts and minds on the Lord. It's very helpful there in verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. What a statement of David's confidence. That's what it came down to in the midst of his trouble, this confidence that the Lord was keeping him. It reminds me of a story I heard a, a friend of mine share recently in our growth group, uh, Greg Vetito. I asked him if I could share this. Um, I think it's very helpful. In 2010, Greg was a second lieutenant in a remote patrol base uh, with two Marine rifle squads. 
and a platoon of the Afghanistan National Army soldiers. And he was the senior man in charge. Night one, they received a report of a possible imminent attack on their position by the Taliban. In his mind, he said, there are people who want to kill us. And he was the man in charge to defend the position. And so sleep was fleeting and fitful. But once a month, every month or so, he would be summoned to the higher headquarters position for a commander's meeting. And he was there with his commanding officer. And upon entering friendly lines at that position, he felt safer. Now, it wasn't because he wasn't any longer in hostile territory. There was still a real enemy that wanted to kill him and everyone around him. But at that moment, he had relief because the security wasn't resting upon his, soldier, his shoulders as the commanding officer. There was a higher authority in charge. So he testifies that knowing that he wasn't the commanding officer, someone else was responsible. He was able to sleep and sleep in peace. Here David, the warrior, worshiper king, knows this too, that he learned that the Lord and the Lord alone is the one who makes him dwell in safety. And so in peace, he was able to lie down and sleep. Amen? Let's ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our great God, I know it's a sensitive topic for many folks, the subject of sleep and sleeplessness and insomnia. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to look to you. Help us to find our confidence in your promises and the cross of your son, Jesus, so that as we await his return, and look forward to the consummation of all things that in the midst of this dark and fallen world, may it be our testimony that we have joy. We have joy overflowing even when there's not grain and wine abounding. And that we have peace. Peace in the midst of trouble, so much so because we are resting and the good news of the gospel, and that our Lord is our Savior and the sovereign ruler of all things, and that not a hair can fall from our head apart from the will of our Father in heaven. And we can trust that he is working all things, good and bad, in this life, for his glory and for our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.